Welcome to Drinks at Work from Boothby with Sam Bygrave. That's me. My guest on this episode is Garth Foster. For the last 15 years, Garth has worked at luxury drinks group Moat Hennessy in both a brand ambassador and business development role on a range of different brands, among them Ardbeg, Belvedere Vodka, and of course, Hennessy. But he recently left Moat Hennessy to launch a new Australian rum brand with his longtime friend, David Fesk. They're a company of two, and Red Mill Rum Co. is the product. So I talked to Garth to see how he's adjusting to small startup drinks brand life after more than a decade on some of the world's most luxurious brands. He also talks about the lessons he's learned working at Moat Hennessy and how that is shaping his thinking for Red Mill Rum Co. He talks about how they make their rum, they're aiming for an uplifting, accessible style of rum. And he also talks about what bartenders are thinking about their first product from getting the product out there and into their hands and into the mixing tins. So it's a good episode. Let's get into my chat now with Garth Foster. Garth Foster, thanks for joining me on Drinks at Work. Thank you so much for having me, mate. This is, uh, yeah, this is a pinnacle. <laughs> You're lying. That's great. Um, you've just started a new role with a brand new product. So let's, I mean, let's start with that. What's the what's the elevator pitch for Red Mill Rum? It's a really exciting uh, project, actually. So yeah, so Red Mill is a reimagining of a, uh, yeah, of a classic sort of vintage Sydney rum that was around from the 1930s to the 1970s. Uh, and I'm actually working with the great grandson of the original founder to uh, get to bring that back to life. So it's been dormant for, uh, yeah, since the late 1970s. And we've been laying down some rum over the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, we're, uh, we, yeah, we're ready to go to market now. That's pretty cool. Uh, what's, what's your role in the brand? What's, uh, do you have equity in the brand? Who's the owner? What? What's the, uh, who's the people behind it? Yeah, so it's a massive promotion for me. So I went from being the, uh, yeah, the, the business development manager for Spirits for, for Mount Hennessy in Australia to 2IC of a, uh, yeah, of, of a rum company, um, which is all very well and, yeah, very well and good. Uh, yeah, 2IC, I'm yeah, head of marketing and head of sales, um, but cool. there's only two people in the company, obviously, as well. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I do everything from, uh, yeah, yeah, from sitting on board meetings to, uh, yeah, to sweep the distillery out at the end of the night there as well. So it's very all-encompassing. Where, where's the distillery at? So we've actually just taken over a site uh, in Roselle. So we're in the, the sort of the shadow of the old White Bay Power Terminal, which is a, yeah, oh, yeah. A, an amazing historical site and uh, sort of part of the old uh, steelworks there. So we haven't actually made any rum there as yet. Um, David's actually been distilling offsite just to sort of make sure that we've had uh, a couple of years to actually lay down some product. So mm. yeah, by the time we actually move uh, barrels and stills and things in, we've actually got some, uh, yeah, some product to, yeah, to sell as well. Right. Because, I mean, there's been a huge boom in sort of Australian craft spirits of late. Uh, there's more gin than anyone could ever hope to make use of, I think. <laughs> well, what is it? What attracted you about the, the rum business, I guess? It's definitely not a timing thing for us at the moment. I, I think it's it's been a project that yeah, a David's sort of been uh, yeah has been sort of holding close to his heart for yeah as long as I've uh, as long as I've known him. He's spent a couple of years living in the Caribbean as well, so right. it's something we always yeah always talked about. Uh, so I mean, hopefully timing works out for us. Okay, and we're not just having this great idea uh, and finally realizing the passion for a, yeah for a gin label. Uh, but it's yeah that the thing's always been rum. Uh, so if we're if we're sort of lucky enough and we uh, yeah and rum is the next big thing, that would be absolutely fantastic news. But the mm-hmm. idea is that uh yeah that's our passion anyway so uh, we were going to do it regardless of uh yeah regardless so of tell us about the a bit of the history to the brand because it was from the 1930s you said from 1930s to about the 1970s did it go yeah so 1933 david's great grandfather george uh, fesk uh sort of returned from the war and the family wine and spirits business was in a bit of a lull and he sort of he read the room quite well and actually uh actually created a, a house brand for fesk and company called red mill rum right uh, it was actually made in the old csr uh, refinery that uh, existed in piermont down in piermont so yeah. there were so the, a old, few different, the old bartender yeah. magazine offices down there 
So yeah, so and that used to be like that used to be like the beating, uh, yeah, like the beating heart of Sydney. It was, oh. uh, uh, but yeah, before, yeah, it was uh, sawmills, slaughterhouses, you name it. That was sort of yeah where all the industry basically happened. Mm. Um, and there were a few other rum brands that were made there as well. So it was Old Kedge, uh, Frigate Rum, and uh, eventually Inner Circle was made there as well. Yeah. So a lot of the yeah the Australian sugar that basically made its way to Sydney to be uh, yet to be refined. They then had a couple of uh, of pot stills there, which they'd uh, it almost started as a hobby to be honest. I don't think they were really <laughs> Planning to uh, yeah to, to yeah to sort of to, to any great scale, but then uh, the, yeah the quality of the product sort of led them to uh, create a few different brands. And what sort of styles of rum is Red Mill Rumco going to be doing? Is it just the one style or? No, so we're, uh, we're a we've got a, an overarching style, but yeah, there'll definitely be a few different uh, a few different skews there. It it varies somewhat from what the original Red Mill would have been. So in the 1930s, it would have been a very heavy, um, sort of thick molasses based rum. Yeah. Um, they were really well known for their overproof rum as well. And uh, for a couple of decades, Red Mill was actually the city's most popular rum, and also then sort of out into the into the western uh, country of, uh, of New South Wales as well. But we're doing something very different. So I sort of mentioned before that we're trying to reimagine uh, rum. So rather than using a big heavy molasses base where there's plenty of uh, people actually doing that both around the world and in, in Australia. Mm. We really want to create something that's a little bit more, I wouldn't say delicate, but a little bit more sort of, uh, yeah, sort of uplifting and a little bit more accessible. Uh, still super delicious. And yeah, we want to make something that's delicious that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that sort of, yeah, I, I suppose sort of breaks the boundaries of what people think of as Australian rum at the moment. So what are you going towards more like a rum that's suited in daiquiris? I know that you've got the Red Mill Rum Co. in on at Old Loves in Sydney for like their seasonal daiquiri. Yeah, I, mean, I think I remember reading somewhere a few years ago about your your top ten drinks of the year. Were they? Um, <laughs> I think daiquiri was number one, and daiquiri was number ten, and uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, the eight in between also yeah, at least began with a D. Um, yeah, it's, it's a delicious drink, and there's other drinks, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, such a delicious drink as well. I think it, it had a tough time in the 1980s where it, yeah, uh, things became sort of very, uh, very sugar forward and very uh, you know, sort of very artificially uh, driven. Mm. So to be honest, we actually didn't necessarily make the first rum to, uh, to get to get to be suited in a daiquiri. We just uh, yeah, as we sort of uh, had made something that we we're really happy with and we're experimenting with it in a few different uh, cocktails. The daiquiri was the one that jumped out. Yeah. And then giving it to a bunch of different bartenders so far, like everyone has sort of come back with some sort of version of the, yeah, version of the daiquiri as well. So, <laughs> Well, I think that's probably, you're probably in a good place there, right? If, if bartenders want to put into bartenders' favorite cocktail. so Yeah, exactly. And you can imagine that. It's like, yeah, the rum's okay. It doesn't really go in a daiquiri though. It's, yeah. uh, and therefore <laughs> so have no it's, use um, for it. <laughs> But yeah, no, and for some people, we've been sort of doing some blind tastings with it as well, and, and deliberately giving it to people that you know, consider themselves not rum drinkers. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, and that's a sort of very delicate daiquiri that uh, yeah, it's like oh wow, what's that? I could you know I, I could easily drink that. So okay. we've also made had some successes in some some rum spritzes as well. So yeah, so this uh, this first skew, this little baby rum, is uh, yeah, sort of great, light and delicate, and we sort of hope to be a, a bit of a bartender's favourite. Yeah, and how was this one made? What's so what what's the name of the skew? It's the uh, so we yeah we know it as the baby rum just because it uh, yeah it's not quite two years of old but yeah we, we are making a rum uh, obviously we've got those rules we've got to deal with in yeah in Australia about uh, a rum having to be aged for a minimum of two years mm. in in oak casks for it to be uh, for it to be classified as a rum so technically it's a cane spirit uh, the okay. label says cut cane spirit uh, and we've got. 
so yeah, so our base product is actually refined sugar. So we use a combination of white and brown sugar. The theory behind that being is that we're we're, we're making it in Sydney, so we, we want the product to be local. Mm. There's no there's no sugarcane fields around, uh, so we're not sort of going to be making an agricultural style. So we're either yeah, going to be making from sugar or from some sort of molasses derivative. Yeah. Uh, and so we've actually chose just refined sugar uh, again, with the idea being that we're going for something sort of very precise, uh, right. very delicate, and very delicious. And where do you get the sugar from? Uh, we're a few different sources actually. So we've, uh, yeah, cause over the past few years, we've actually been experimenting with exactly, uh, sort of what ratio, uh, yeah. And, and sort of what style of sugar that we're, yeah, yeah, that we're after. So there's a few different, uh, yeah, a few different versions that we've used in a few different of, yeah, of the distillations. Yeah. And then, so what's like the distillation process? What's the, you know, is it, is it, and does it have any maturation at all or? Yeah. So, oh, the baby rum itself. Yeah. So that's a really big part of what we're trying to do as well. I really so, hope you can call um, it baby rum one day because I love that name. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's probably a few rules that we might be breaking there as well. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I don't think the, uh, the advertising uh, standards guys are going to love that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Big part of what we're doing is, yeah, is our aging or elevage program. So we're super lucky in that uh, Feskin Company have sort of had yeah, such robust relationships being a wine distribution company and Australia's oldest uh, family-run wine distribution company since 1848, I think, from memory. Yeah. Um, they have got great relationships with uh, wineries, both we have within Australia and around the world. So our barrel aging program is is sort of really off to a great start because some of the first barrels we bought were you know hundred year old cognac barrels, sauterne casks, which are like uh, which are like hen's teeth, uh, yeah, as well as some sort of yeah some, some really left field artisanal Australian producers as well. So barrel aging is a really big part of uh, yeah of our brand DNA. Uh, and the one where the baby run uh, has got between sort of six to eighteen months of barrel age there. We yeah. use some of those cognac casks uh, as well as pheno sherry which actually sort of gives a really uh, interesting sort of herbaceous note there as well that's but cool. there's also some you make uh, spirit in that it's um yeah it's we sort of we've taken a, a sort of very delicate refined new make and then just added a little bit of elevage to it about sort of 75 percent new make and then about 25 percent age between six to 18 months cool and what can you tell us about the uh, distillation process like is it column pot stills what's what's going on there yeah. So again, over the past few years, we've been, because uh, uh, this is something sort of new to us as well. So it's like, okay, uh, yeah, having the options for it, um, David was like, do I, you know, do I just call, pick up the phone and call somebody and sort of say, hey, you know, I need 20,000 litres of rum and yeah, I'm just going to come and um, yeah, age it myself and then stick a, a, stick a label on it. Um, but he sort of really wanted to get his not only even just hands dirty, but because we're going to be distilling it on site uh, yeah. as well, we sort of needed to take those few years of actually experimenting as much as we could to actually sort of work out what style of distillation was uh, yeah was appropriate. The one that we so we've done some distillations in Sydney, some uh, distillations in some uh, yeah in some other distilleries around the country as well. The one that we found that uh, really sort of suited the style we're after was actually a column, uh, a column still. So again, we're using a very refined product to yeah, to begin with, and then we're actually using a yeah, a, yeah, a column still there as well, just to sort of make it very precise and uh, and very elegant. You, as you said, you were you know, working for the rather luxury kind of uh, spirits provider that is Moet Hennessy. Uh, you were there for a long time. Um, when did you start with Moet Hennessy? Uh, I think I was at Moen Hennessy. Like, I think it was fourteen of yeah. The dates, um, I'm showing my age, but yeah, it was either fourteen or fifteen years, so yeah. a long time ago. But I was very lucky and very thankful for Moen. The, the first few years that I was working there, I was actually working uh, on agency side, right. uh, and then they, uh, yeah, after I became full time, they're actually yeah very generous and actually then uh, yeah, he sort of gave me credit for actually doing those the equivalent of full time uh, yeah for those agency years as well. So that was um, yeah very generous and something I was very. Uh, 
yeah, very thankful for. But yeah, yeah. Uh, with, with Mount Hennessy one way or another for yeah, 14 or 15 years. Yeah. So how did that experience in that kind of luxury into the, the spirits market, how did that prepare you for what you're about to do now? Are you, are you going to be sort of positioning this in sort of a higher end of the market or what's the thinking there? It's a tough one because, A, yes, we'd love to love to create a luxury product and that's definitely what we're aiming for. Um, but then also rum itself, like as a, as a category, as a product, like rum is quite egalitarian. So, mm. yeah, we, we, we definitely want to be there for, yeah, there for all and not, yeah, and not pretentious. We want to create uh, a beautifully delicious product, uh, both inside and outside the bottle. Uh, and then I think the thing that sort of sets your luxury uh, aside from uh, you know, possibly some other goods is a the stories that you, you can tell and I think we've sort of got those and we've got that history and we've got that sort of provenance so mm. uh, yeah I think we're definitely sort of playing in that uh, yeah yeah we're playing in that sphere and then obviously the yeah, the quality of product will uh, yeah we, we can definitely stand behind there as yeah. well what were some of the big lessons you drew from your your career you know over at Hennessy because you were sort of in the brand ambassadory side of things and then a bit more in you know business development later on is that right like you've touched on marketing, you've touched on sales and all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly, which, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, and then that's part of the reason why I was there for so long, uh, to be honest, was there was always sort of something new to learn and uh, yeah, mm. so, yeah, so something else new to cover. Oh, one of the le- lessons, um, the, I sort of found this one, uh, I, I did my first tra- yeah, trade show the other day and, uh, yes, yeah, something I learned was just the power of merchandise. <laughs> I was like, oh, right. just, just, uh, even just sort of decorating a little stand. I'm like, oh, wow. At Moet, I would have, uh, yeah, picked up the phone and, uh, yeah, just called the warehouse and said, yeah, give me two of these, four of those, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Um, I need some branded up wine, wine get, buckets or something or yeah, branded glass. Yeah, exactly. Like, ah, oh. so even just finding a t-shirt to, um, yeah, to, you know, to, to, to work in the garden is, uh, is just a difficult thing now. Or umbrellas. I bought my first like non, non-merch umbrella the other day from Bunnings. It was, um, it was a really new experience. No, but, um, it, it, it also, I mean, and, um, Dave and I have sort of had this conversation as well, because it's like, look, you know, we, we are obviously we're going to need some, yeah, that there will be like merchandise down the track with but we want to do things um yeah you don't want to waste money as well so it's like mm. as well as the advantage of sort of having that uh, yeah that big warehouse full of uh, yeah full of shiny toys um there was also that yeah, yeah when you do the stock control after uh, yeah after some time you realize that okay there's you know there's often pallets of merchandise that actually doesn't get used or it's old label and yeah. so uh, it's sort of actually good being on the ground floor and sort of having ha- having the power to actually yeah make sure that we yeah create things responsibly, things that are useful and, uh, yeah, mm. yeah, things that aren't just going to be uh, landfill uh, in a couple of years. What was it like being back at, in the trade show thing, uh, you know, with a brand new product that no one's heard of? What is that feeling like? I mean, because you work with some of the biggest brands in the world and now this one that's just um, just getting started. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's fantastic. It's a challenge. It, it, it really is. And... Luckily, this brand has a lot of uh, similarities with the, those luxury brands, anyway. Is that it's got this this history and uh, because I'm a so close with the Fesk family, but then also have sort of sort of seen the work that they've put into it over uh, only over the last couple of generations. But sort of knowing that that sort of uh, yeah, that all that love uh, is sort of six generations de- deep for the brands that they've been distributing. Mm. Um, yeah, it sort of uh, sort of definitely sort of feels like I've got a yeah a definite a sort of feeling of responsibility to sort of make sure I uh, yeah I put this in the correct light. Oh, the trade show itself is like it's yeah it, that's tough as well just uh yeah um to, uh, yeah doing a sales pitch uh to yeah three or four hundred people um yeah what's yeah, two times three hour sessions it's uh yeah I'm, I definitely I imagine it's good that it sort of might Hennessy a little bit because yeah. because I mean working in these kind of companies you know prestigious companies you probably know how to open a bottle of champagne pretty well by now but they're quite business oriented you know you 
you've got to know how to work in the culture and the people there and you were someone who was there for a long time. How does that work with going back to the sort of smaller roots kind of thing? Yeah, so I'm still just fi- uh, feeling that out sort of, yeah, day by day. I mean, to be honest, even just working for a the, – the, the biggest shock for me is actually just working for such a small company. It's like there's literally two of us. So, yeah. you know, when my um, when my laptop doesn't work, I'm like, hey, who do I um, – who who's the IT department? I'm just like, yeah, mate, you're looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> so, mind you, that being said, sometimes, yeah, again, some of those bigger companies, you can, yeah, maybe get caught up in a little bit of red tape there as well. So, mm. uh, yeah, I haven't had some, yeah, even though I've got no one to help me with my computer, I haven't actually had any, uh, <laughs> haven't had any issues with my laptop so far. <laughs> I don't have to change my password every four seconds. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, your life's, uh, life's much simpler. Yeah. But, um, no, the, um, the, the strength that, or, or the advantage that I had at Moat was just because I was simply because I was there for so long, it was great to sort of see projects through right for, through right from conception all the way through to uh, yeah, through, through to completion and analysis. Mm. So whether that was uh, a marketing platform, whether that was a, like a sales campaign or sort of sales drive, or even like a new product development, um, you know, I, I was in on the ground floor and could sort of see the yeah, the way that uh, the way that that was sort of conceptualized and the way that was executed. I, I don't, mm. Yeah, I often have my own views as to whether it would work or mm. not. But then, sort of seeing it progress through the different stages, and then at the end having a result of you know either success or failure or, or, or learnings. Whereas now, David and I sort of sit there and we sort of say like, look, I know that some of these decisions we're making. Um, like I know that, you know, some of them are going to be absolutely terrible and some are going to lose us money and some are going to be like, okay, we're going to have to you know, spend years uh, rectifying them. On the other hand, I know some are going to be brilliant and that we're going to, um, yeah, have a lot of success from these, these tiny little decisions that we're making now. The only problem is I don't know which which one's which. <laughs> like, you're sitting there going like, okay, I don't know. Yeah, I don't sort of have the, um, yeah. I don't sort of have that, uh, yeah, that crystal ball. So, do you, are you going to take anything away from Ten Can? Because you would have been there when Ten Can was introduced, right? That was like the the luxury. Yeah, yeah, at, definitely at, at Rum. Yeah, well, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, Ten Can was a was a tough one because yeah, I've definitely taken a lot of learnings from yeah from Ten Can. Yeah, um, no, I mean not withstanding that Australia was actually one of the more successful markets. Right. So we were actually doing things, yeah, we were doing things correct, yeah. um, which is good because, yeah, now you and I can joke about <laughs> 10K, but, yeah, if you ask somebody in America, they're like, well, I don't even know what 10K is, whereas right. you know, like, yeah. The, yeah, the industry actually yeah, in Australia remembers it. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, there were a, a few mishaps along the way we, 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 yeah, with 10K. And the, the, the first being basically just a, yeah, a giant recipe change um, uh, okay. uh, and packaging change yeah, with, yeah, within just a couple of years of its, uh, yeah, of its release. Uh, well, what's in the pipeline for Red Mill Rumco? What's the sort of, what does next year look like for you guys? Yeah, so we're literally, yeah, our short, medium, long-term plans are just, yeah, we like, literally just change every year, yeah, every Monday. <laughs> That's beautiful being small and agile, right? Yeah, exactly. No. Um, yeah. So first things first was just to try and get this baby rum into the market. So um, we're really happy with the actual liquid itself. Yeah. We've sort of learnt the distillation process that works best for us. We know that, uh, yeah, some of the barrels are coming along really well. And actually just last Monday, uh, our first barrels um, turned two. Cool. So two is a really big birthday. It's sort of like, yeah, it's like the 18th in the rum world for, <laughs> yeah, for a barrel. So that was fantastic because we took a, a bunch of different samples from a bunch of different barrels and, you know, like we were sort of like closing our eyes and crossing our fingers as we we're having a sip, so, sort of going like, okay, are these going to be ready? You know, are these on the right track? Are they, you know, are they going to need another two years? Mm. Are they going to be, you know, have, what are they going to taste like? And they um, absolutely tasted magic. It was incredible. We both just sort of looked at each other and just had a big sigh of relief and just went, okay, wow. 
wow, we're onto something. We're on something here. Like we're very happy with the yeah the liquid and the baby rum, but the the end goal has always been to create delicious actual you know rum rums, not to, yeah not not cane spirit. So yeah, and, and this is the first sort of piece of that. Just going actually like this hasn't all been in vain. We're um yeah we're onto something really really. Cool. I'm glad I left my job, says Garth. So it was uh, it was fantastic. It was, yeah, I'm just looking like. Whew. I mean, I, I tried some of the samples as as he was uh, yeah as he was sort of offering yeah me the role. I'm like, okay, like I get I, I like it, but let's let's taste some of the liquid. Yeah. But um, but yeah, but that was some months ago as well. So now that they're actually two years of age, and the cognac barrels are tasting absolutely incredible. Um, the white burgundy is something that's uh, yeah that's so so wow. different and just so delicious. It's uh, yeah, it's really really good fun. So already we're sort of now starting to think of okay, uh, you know, are we going to be doing single barrel releases for these, which wasn't something that we yeah. had anticipated but we're like some of them are just so perfect and so uh yeah sort of fully formed anywhere that it's like this could just go as a single barrel uh, yeah as a single barrel yeah. release um but then others were going okay like yeah the, this this pin and well oh, this pin and wild cask is is lovely but it's yeah it probably just needs another dimension do we add that to uh yeah to this oloroso sherry that we've got so yeah. uh, that's sort of part of the next stage of that is actually sort of doing that um doing that list and just saying okay well all right we've got these cognac barrels they're gorgeous but we we've only got x amount of them so we don't want to lose them all you know right away like how many are going to be you know do we yeah. want to you know, leave to a five-year or a 10-year period so yeah it's a fun equation to yeah to yeah to, to so it's, it sounds to me like it's you know because sometimes when brands are coming out with new releases or whatever sometimes like the marketing department says hey can you give us this kind of expression from your you know warehouses full of rum or whatever and sometimes it's, uh, well, this is what we have. Why don't we do this expression? Yeah, exactly. And uh, <clears throat> again, just being a two-person company at the moment, it's we're both we're both sales and we're both marketing yeah. and we're both uh, production. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> so that yeah, it, it is really good fun. At, at the moment, we just want to we just want to release something that's delicious. I, I, yeah, you don't you don't sort of get many chances to make a first impression. Mm. So we really want to make sure that 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 yeah that first um, red mill bottle that actually has red mill rum on it is something that people uh, yeah both talk about and something that people yeah sort of really get behind there as well. So um, there's already been yeah there's there's some pretty robust discussions about packaging as well because in seeing some of the vintage things like they they like some of them are great as well the old windmill and some of the old uh, some of the old marketing materials are, are really fun and eye catching but then again we're not creating a retro brand we want to if we're going to reimagine rum we sort of want to take it to a new space so we've sort of also got some sort of very modern things that we sort of need to need to tie in there as well and i guess our biggest hurdle at the moment is tying in the old with the new to sort of say hey we are you know we are a, a new rum and a new product but we do have this uh, yeah. this amazing um yeah, yeah product at well how, how do you think about that what how do you think about that when it comes to you know building a new product uh bringing in that like that the heritage that you've got in the in this brand it's in the in the family for however long uh the iconography but then keep it modern and, and fresh for today's consumer because today's rum drinker i think you know particularly it sounds like for the kind of rum drinker you want to get is very different to the rum drinker of the 1930 sydney i reckon yeah, again, some pretty robust discussions, usually over a couple of, um, <laughs> usually over a couple of tastings. Yeah. But um, I, I, I suppose we, we start broad picture and we sort of say, look, what what do we want to be and what do we not want to be? And if we don't want to be something, that's not necessarily saying that that's um, yeah that that's that's wrong or that's bad or that's you know there's, there's plenty of rum that sells because it's got a um, it's got a pirate story or yeah. a um, you know a pirate on the label and, and nothing wrong with that at all. And I, I'm a big fan of yeah of, of lots of those rums as well. But it's, you know, how do we sort of, yeah, carve that, uh, yeah, carve that niche uh, niche in there. Because you want to stand uh, out, don't David's you? a super creative. You want to stand out as well, but then you need, you need as many 
uh, you, you need enough brand codes in there as well that people, when people are looking at the bottle, they can actually understand. Okay, I, you know, I understand it's right. rum. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's a sort of yeah, it is a fine line, and it's one that there'll probably be a bit of push and shove there as well. Like uh, I think you know you can start with something, but then you, it's not until you actually get the feedback from the consumers where you go, okay, like you know people get it or people don't get yeah. it, and then the next question is like, do we care if they get it or not, or we're we just going to keep doing our thing and eventually they will and people will come around or they won't and you know they can keep drinking gin. <laughs> like Marie Antoinette, let them have gin. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what do you think is the biggest hurdle that you've got to get past to get this rum into more people's mouths, basically? Yeah, I think it's probably just the perception of rum itself. So I, th- I think, um, and already even uh, in cocktail party conversations, sometimes when um, you know you, you tell somebody who's not within the industry, like, oh, you know, I'm going to be you know, opening a rum distillery, you can sort of see them sometimes being a little bit taken aback, like, oh, are you a, an angry gentleman? <laughs> like, <laughs> on the rumbos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's probably the biggest thing that we're. And again, not like I'm not disparaging that yeah. at all. Like, yeah, for, well, you're for, talking yeah, to a Queensland guy. The, the, the guy who likes to drink lots of rum and coke. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly why I backed out of that one. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's sort of just changing that. Yeah, is is sort of changing that perception, uh, and and that's a lot of why the packaging is the way it is that it's, it's really bright. It's really out there. It has lots of sort of coastal and sort of floral motifs. Uh, and it's there to sort of say like, yeah, if you walk into a party, it's just like, Oh wow. Yeah, cool. We're drinking daiquiris. Not like, Oh, we're just going to be drinking rum and coke yeah. tonight. What's the, yeah. So uh, how important is it like the Australian thing to, to the rum that you're doing? Is it because like, I know there's a few brands that are really, you know, embracing the Australian rum kind of vibe. Is it important to have that sort of sense of, the country that the rum comes from or, or the place? Yeah, well, it's definitely important to us simply because, I mean, it's one of our advantages is we've got the history of that, uh, yeah, 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 of that from the 1930s. Yeah. So um, not only Australia but Sydney uh, as a location as well is, is definitely important there. Yeah, I, th- I think it is important as well in that, like, Australia should be drinking more rum. Like, you know, we're, a, we're a sugar island. <laughs> like, we've, we've got it in the history. We're, yeah. uh, um, and, and, yeah, not even just from, uh, yeah, from our agriculture, but even just from the history of Sydney with, uh, yeah, with the rum corpse. And there's a lot of positives to that history as well. Uh, you know, Sydney's first hospital was basically paid for by, uh, yeah, by rum. It was called the Rum Hospital for, yeah, for, for, yeah, for many, many yeah. years. So um, I think rum sort of gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes where it's like, hey, hang on a second. This- I've got one more question for you, Garth, and it's sort of the drinks at work question. It's uh, what makes a great bar to you, and more importantly, what makes you happy in a bar? And for people uh, listening, I should point out that you were you were a bartender back in the day. Yeah, and still yeah. are. It's, uh, yeah, every um, yeah, every family uh, event is just like, oh, hi, Garth. Can you? It's like, mum, you can get your own. It's it's a it's a bottle of wine. The wine's already open. It's just you just want me to get up and go and get it for you. It's like it's this is not about a skill. This is <laughs> no. For, um, for to me, bars are about escape. Um, and I I say this, and I I should point out that. Uh, I'm talking about bars here and not actually alcohol. I think if you're going to alcohol for escape, that's probably mm. not. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's not a good thing. But um, yeah, an escape that can be like sometimes escape from discra- uh, distraction. Like you, you look at, I'm sure some of your favourite uh, writers, Hemingway and and yeah, Ian Fleming. You know, they'd actually go to bars to get away from things so they could actually they could actually concentrate and do some yeah. writing. Um, it could be escape from effort when you're like traveling or sightseeing and you're like, actually, you know, I, I need a break. I've, yeah, I've done enough uh, ruins here. I, I need an Aperol spritz or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, escape from work, obviously, where it's like, where's the first place you head? It's uh, yeah, at 5 p.m. if you're, uh, if you're a 9 to 5 yeah. um, Escape from your location. Uh, you know, you can be in the uh, 
like the middle of a, bu- a busy city and you walk through some doors and uh, next thing you know, you're, you're sort of sitting in the, in the South Pacific. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or even escape from your own head. Like I was sort of thinking about pubs and uh, maybe sort of country country pubs or mainly the English ones. But um, you know, the pub would be where you went to to have conversation with. You know, that's where you'd have your town meetings. That's where you'd sort of discuss really important issues as well as as well as gossip. Yeah. And then there's escape from being single as well, which uh, we won't go too much into. Um, and also escapes the name of one of my favourite songs, which is uh, yeah, the Pina Colada song, which sort of ties the whole uh, yeah rum thing together. That is a pretty damn good answer to that question. I'm glad to hear it. Excellent. Well, thank you, Garth. Thanks for talking to me. And um, uh, so, Garth, where can people get their hands on uh, Red Mill Rum Co. stuff? We can actually buy. You can actually buy from us direct. So, um, redmillrum.com.au, as well as we a- anyone who has a Fesk account can also uh, yeah purchase through them. And then we're in a couple of wholesalers, or will be by the time this podcast comes out, which is uh, Paramount and uh, ALM. And the baby rum's available now, and then you're probably looking, depending on yeah, depending on how we go with bottling, etc. Because uh, yeah, I'm literally doing hand bottling as well, so it's uh, yeah, I'm sticking labels on. So uh, yeah, we're looking at uh, probably January, February for the age stuff. Wonderful. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing that when it comes out. Then, thanks very much, Garth. Thank you. Thanks to Garth for the chat, and thank you to you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend, and maybe leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If we get a couple of good ones, I'll read them out in the upcoming episodes. Okay, until next time, this has been Drinks at Work from Boothby.